Hello, and welcome back to All Rings Considered. Today we are covering Book 3, Chapter 2, The Writers of Rohan. Quick synopsis of the chapter. Uh, we have our trio, uh, Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli, uh, on the pursuit of the orcs which have carried off Merry and Pippin, um, and they are chasing them on foot, but have uh, little hope of catching these orcs who are traveling both by day and night. Um, they encounter... On the path, they encounter both a mound of dead orcs from Mordor, signaling to them that the orcs of Saruman uh, are in charge. They also encounter a series of footprints left by Mary and a token of, of elvish origin uh, to signal that Mary is alive. And they also um, uh, run into riders of Rohan, and they uh, have a conversation with uh, the writers, um, they are determined not to be orcs, and they... Oh, good for them. Yeah. <laughs> Aragorn reveals himself as as who he is um, after their conversation, and he and Gimli and Legolas are given horses to continue on on their journey. Um, and so at the end of the chapter, the trio comes upon the uh, fires, the, the mounds of uh, dead orcs that the, the writers of Rohan have have set after uh, descending upon the orcs and slaying them. And they are on the edge of the forest of Fangorn. Uh, and they uh, see an old man uh, in the night who appears uh, and then disappears. So um, this is a big chapter. Uh, I left a few yes. things out. It is a longer chapter than some of the ones previous. Uh, mm -hmm. But a lot of great stuff going here. This chapter that we were talking about before the episode started is a big is a big prose chapter. You can pull out great lines just back to back. You know, you just cut them off the bone here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it, the reason this chapter I think is so big is that it's combining different types of chapters for Tolkien. We've talked about this before, how he has some chapters that are sitting and talking about exposition, their expository details. This is something like the Council of Elrond or the Shadow of the Past. Just here's how the story, here's stuff you need to know for the story. We have chapters where they're also in one place, but it's much more thematic. So the Lorien chapters are like this, right? It's kind of in one place, but lots of themes being discussed. I mean, not so much expository stuff, but just themes. And then you have chapters where characters travel. This chapter is all three of those. It is everything. Everything is here. So I think that's why we have such a big, big chapter with a lot to talk about and a lot to cover. Uh, yeah. I also get the I get a sense that Tolkien sort of was inspired here. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is speculation, but I just I get a feeling reading this chapter. Tolkien's Tolkien got a burst of energy and was like, "I got some ideas. Let's go." <laughs> yeah, uh, you can felt, feel it. Yeah, too. I, mean, I get just this chapter gives me chills. Here, he's thinking, "I got something going here. Okay, let's go. Let's go." I think that's really cool. So. I love the the interplay between Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. It's almost like a. Um, it reminds me of a piece by Galileo, where he has two philosophers discussing the universe, um, and then a simple man. And so they have this sort of interplay between three. It's a you know dialogue between the three, um, mm -hmm. the trilogue, and just some of that comes up in you know in this chapter. It kind of reminds me, you know, Gimli is always the sort of the simple. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Simplicio kind of bringing up the, you know, the obvious contradiction, you know, not to downplay, you know, Gimli's intelligence, but I, I get this, mm. this great dynamic between the three. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to make a note on these three too. We touched on this. We, we briefly mentioned something last chapter that I wanted to elaborate on. 
which is that these characters are superhuman. And we see this in a big way in this chapter with how they're able to run for how long and how far. Right. And it's just superhuman stuff. I mean, I think I I was doing math while in this chapter, and I think it ended up something like they run like over 100 miles. I mean, it gets pretty crazy. We We met someone like that on the Appalachian Trail. Oh, we did. Yeah, we meet these people. Yeah. High mileage. High mileage. High mileage. Shout out to high mileage. with a cigarette in his mouth uh, at like at midnight. Night. Yeah. Yes. At night. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, absolutely. A great to point out that these are superhuman characters. And one reason I want to point out too is because he's just he's drawing on sort of mythic archetypes here. So when you read, it's like reading Homer, and you're reading the Iliad. And men like Achilles and Hector are these just, they're superhuman, right? They're just better than everybody else. They're just stronger. And so it gives the it gives the story a, a mythic, legendary vibe that it otherwise wouldn't have, I think, if it were just normal people, so to speak. So I don't, you know, and there's in-universe explanations for this, at least with Legolas and Aragorn for sure. But I don't even care. Like, I don't even need that. I think just just the the... the mythic epic feel to having these kind of superhuman characters is i think really effective absolutely uh before we jump into some of the happenings and the themes going on i just want to pick out i mentioned before that the prose here is just beautiful i have one that's just a description of the landscape that i think just sets the tone for Mm -hmm. the sort of uh, feeling of you know going over the fields of rohan Before them in the west the world lay still, formless and gray, but even as they looked the shadows of night melted, the colors of the waking earth returned. Green flowed over the wide meads of Rohan, the white mists shimmered in the water water veils, and far off to the left, thirty leagues or more, blue and purple, stood the white mountains, rising into peaks of jet, tipped with glimmering snows, flushed with the rose morning. Or flushed with the rose of morning. Yeah. And it's just like that the whole chapter, so... If you're, if anyone is thinking about rereading some Lord of the Rings, uh, if you're familiar with the the plot, uh, this is just great to pick out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that reminds me of a theme I'm taking from this chapter, which is sort of the the landscape itself in this chapter. We've seen this before. It's Tolkien. Landscape is such a big deal, but it's really coming out in this chapter. The landscape itself is part of the legend, part of the myth. In that we need to be able to look at the world around us and appreciate the mythic aspect of all of it. Every tree we see, every mountain, hill, it, it just have a fonder appreciation. I think that text you just read speaks to this, but it, this really just goes with my favorite line in the chapter. I'm going to use it early here, but I think it's time to discuss it. When they're talking with the writers of Rohan and Eomer, hears about the hobbits and he's already heard about you know coming out of these these guys coming out of Lorien he's heard about Aragorn oh my gosh all these things are happening then he hears about hobbits and he says do we walk in legends or on the green earth in the daylight and Aragorn says a man may do both for not we but those who come after will make the legends of our time the green earth say you that is a mighty matter of legend though you tread it tread it under the light of day so the green earth that's it's a mighty matter of legend like all this landscape stuff tolkien has in here isn't just for setting the stage there's a point to it the world itself is legend is myth is a story and there's a story in each bit of landscape you see 
you have the text you just read, Pip, but I think you also have these great lines about, say, when they first enter into the actual Rohan proper, they've just left the hills, and and it's described as at the bottom of the hill, and it's, it's not even a hill, really. It's, it's, a, it's an escarpment. It's this big sheer wall, almost, is what it's described as, and they get down from the wall of rocks. And it says that at the bottom, they came with a strange suddenness on the grass of Rohan. It swelled like a green sea up to the very foot of the Emin wheel. The falling stream vanished into a deep growth of cresses and water plants, and they could hear it tinkling away in green tunnels down long gentle slopes towards the fens of Entwash Vale far away. It's beautiful. Um, beautiful. You gotta love that. And there's a story to that. It's telling us something. It's communicating something and just a vibe. So... I also want to comment one more thing on that line from Aragorn. It's not just that the Earth is a mighty matter of legend for its for its own sake, as uh, by which I mean to say it's not just that the landscape is a story. It is, but he's also trying to call our attention to the mundane is a story, and the mundane things in life are also myths. So, you know, the the green Earth that's a mighty matter of legend even for all its ordinariness for all it's just you walking around in broad daylight that's a legend that's myth yeah uh i actually i pulled out the the same line for the same reason um good glad the, to be too. yeah yeah i'm glad too because you you said it a little bit better than <laughs> oh. i think i would um but yeah the do you do we walk in legends or on the green earth and the man may do both i i pull out the same you know, maybe moral of that, which is mm. uh, this: uh, it's the it's the job of myth, you know, uh, to encapsulate some sort of truth through the means of story. Yep. And you know, there are things that are larger archetypes of you know how our lives should be. It's such a great um, uh, summarization of the role that myth can play uh, in encapsulating some broader truths about just this, uh, how our lives can be um, and great books I think especially the Lord of the Rings um, do both uh, in the same way that they have uh, the struggles of a, of a specific person where you can say oh I'm following this character and there are specific trials you know oh do I get over this wall or not you know oh do I you know do I catch the the sword that's being thrown to me. Um, this is a very specific problem, but also the problems that apply to everyone. So, you know, kind of an archetype of problems. Yeah. I think that's that's great here, where it's, you know, you can follow uh, your specific problems, but also have a stake in the larger problems of your time. So, yeah, that's great. I'm glad you pulled that out. Me too. Yeah. Uh, good no, good it, job. <laughs> yeah, good job, me. Um, uh, no, it's, uh, it is one of my favorite lines, probably in the book not so much for its sound but just because of that theme i think just being so explicitly stated here it's just really powerful to me uh, a couple other things i wanted to bring up you still see here aragorn being a little doubtful of himself we talked about this last chapter that it seemed maybe at the end of the last chapter he was turning over a new leaf and started to be more sure of himself mm-hmm but he still goes back into it a little bit here. So he still waffles and sort of feels questioning. You have this line where when they're trying to debate whether to go to sleep or not or keep going at night and they say, well, Aragorn will just do whatever you say. 
And he says, you give the choice to an ill chooser. Since we passed through the Argonath, my choices have gone amiss. It's only one line, but it's still just enough to be... Eh. He's still yeah, and he, with that. Yeah. he mentions that when they talk about Gandalf, too, where he's yeah. saying that oh, he's, he's a worse leader. You know, yeah. So many words. Yeah. So, so much of this is just, we got to get everyone's confidence back. <laughs> because yeah. I think, you know, it'd be interesting now that we have read this far into it to at some point go back and reread some of the stuff when he first showed up by, back in book one, mm-hmm. when he was leading the hobbits to see if there's any, if that same characteristics there. I don't remember it. I don't recall getting that vibe from him then. Yeah, I don't either. I, I seem to remember just getting, I seem, I seem to remember just getting a perception of him as from the hobbits. Since we're so we're so hobbit focused, yeah. you know, or from the perspective, it would say a lot if he in those earlier chapters is more confident. It would say something about his comfort zone, sort of that he's actually more comfortable being that ranger in the wilderness mm-hmm. than being out here and doing his more perhaps rightful job of you know leading these great people as the king you know he's not there yet but uh well on the topic of aragorn we have this uh great interaction when he between him and eomir when the riders of rohan encircle the the company or you know the trio and you know have their thicket of spears aimed at them aragorn first introduces himself as strider and then he has this transformation where he reveals himself as aragorn and he really it has this you know miraculous transformation I pulled out some of the lines that he spoke to. Let me pick out... Yeah, here. Uh, Aragorn threw back his cloak. The elven sheath glittered as he grasped it, and the bright blade of Andril shone like a sudden flame as he swept it out. Elendil, he cried, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and am called Elisar, the Elfstone, Dunedan, the heir of Isildur, Elendil, son of Gondor. Here is the sword that was broken and is forged again. Will you aid me or thwart me? Choose swiftly. And he's giving this command to to Eomir, who, you know, he's not even in, he's in Eomir's land, and he's, you know, ordering him to, you know, you know choose swiftly his decision about whether, you know, he will be Aragorn's friend or foe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the reaction from Gimli and Legolas is great, too, because it says Gimli and Legolas looked at their companion in amazement, for they had not seen him in this mood before. He seemed to have grown in stature, while Eomir had shrunk, and in his living face, they caught a brief vision of the power and majesty of the kings of stone. For a moment, it seemed to the eyes of Legolas that white flame flickered on the brows of Aragorn like a shining crown. And here again, we have that very Tolkienism of someone revealing themselves and their true, to their true self. They rise in stature. They, their physical characteristics, like in myth, you know, mm-hmm. meet this grand state of their their uh, I don't know, their their self. Yeah, and it just reminds me of that episode where you said Lord of the Rings make a great anime. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Where the where the the physical representations are more about the you know perception of what a thing is rather than what's physically there. Mm-hmm. I'd watch that. I I would watch the Lord of the Rings adapted into pretty much anything. I'm not really sure <laughs> there's something I wouldn't watch it adapted into. You know what I would listen I had to, to think about this like a podcast. Hmm. Like two friends. Yeah. Well, friends, two, let's let's pushing it. Let's, well, let's <laughs> two guys just you know chatting, just hamming it up. Should they just what do you think? One episode per book? Uh, depends on how many books there are. Well, we digress. So, 
So if yeah, I mean, who would ever do that? So right? <laughs> let's just get back uh, to it. Uh, another just thing to point out, the constant theme here of Tolkien's rejection of utilitarianism. We see it here when Eomer asks Aragorn, how shall a man judge what to do in such times? And Aragorn says, as he ever has judged, good and ill have not changed since yesteryear, nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves and another th among men. It is a man's part to discern them as much in the golden wood as in his own house. Just great. Duh. Yeah. Just, just, just a great summation of that theme. Tolkien's always playing with it. There's some kind of definite good that you really have to follow, and not worry about the the judgment and, and yeah, and, yeah, and not worry about the sort of hedging your judgments based on this or that external factor. Right? Is there you judge good and evil as you always have? Exactly. Yeah, I love that line too, and it's great. They, I like this. It, there's a little bit more play with it later in, um, I think. I forgot if it was Mary or Pippin, but uh, where in Gondor there is a uh, a guardsman who is struggling with whether to follow the law or follow what he believes is right, and they have that sort of sort of same struggle here. Eomir, yeah, you know, reveals that it's it's the law that you know Aragorn and his company must be brought before before the king. But Aragorn has this really great speech. I'm not going to read it because otherwise I just read this whole chapter. Um, yeah, but but I love how he ends it. Where he he says, you know, or seek to carry out your law. If you do so, there will be fewer to return to your war or to your king. Yeah, it basically just says like, yeah, bring it on <laughs> a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, oh one, oh, just a minor thing I want to point out in this chapter. Um, I love Eomir on Boromir when Aragorn is describing Boromir's fall, and Eomir is you know saying, oh, we we love Boromir. That's you know that's really sad, and uh, but he gives them this compliment, which is. More like to the swift sons of Errol than to the grave men of Gondor, he seemed to me, and likely to prove a great captain of his people when it came, when his time came. Which is that he, like, I love the, the compliment, which is like, well, he was so great. He didn't seem like he was from Gondor. He seemed like he was, you know, he was not them. Yeah. <laughs> right? which is, it was really backhanded compliment. Yeah. Um, wow, well, you know, he seemed like he was one of us. That's great. Um, but I actually really like what he said too, and likely to prove a great captain of his people when his time came. And we actually kind of mentioned how he did do that in a way, providing yeah. a sort of example. We of, the readers have seen yeah. him really be a captain, not of the people of Condor, but something even greater, probably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, a couple other things I want to note. I only had two more things I had noted in here, which is one: this is our intro introduction to the Rohirrim, and our introduction to Tolkien using the old English language as their language. So all their names and terms and stuff are these old English terms, which is gives it a nice feel, nice vibe. So you have Theoden, which means king in, in Old English, Meduseld, which means a, a mead hall in Old English, and so on and so forth. So I think I, I love that aesthetic it gives it, right, that these these are the people who speak the language that sounds both familiar but distant and foreign or somehow older mm -hmm. and they do things like they say theoden king instead of king theoden which is also something from old english it's that kind of attention to detail and world building that i mean i don't think any modern well modern or not modern any fantasy author can ever really match because you have to have that kind of knowledge about <laughs> how languages evolve and work and the relationship between them to be able to capture that feel and that detail of Oh, you know what? Their language sounds a little, oh, okay, a little like ours, but a little older. 
Okay, interesting. And that's because it does evolve into the language. I don't know. I just love it. What a what a cool detail and only Tolkien, right? Right. Well, okay. Let's move on to our favorite lines of the chapter. Um, wait, wait, Charlie... wait, wait, wait. I have oh, one you've got something else? Okay, let's see. Which is just just to share a bit of inspiration I had, which is that I've always liked Tolkien's songs and poetry and stuff. But um, I was never quite sure what they sometimes reminded me of. And then today, just by chance, I stumbled upon this some of this old Scottish folk music online. And all of a sudden it made me realize, oh my gosh, like a lot of this stuff was poems set to music and stuff. And it just made me think, oh, this is this is what it is. This is Tolkien's music or his songs. And so I encourage people to look up songs. Like if you go on YouTube and look up um, like the Wild Geese Scottish folk song, and just kind of like listen to the meter of that in the sort of simple instrumentation. And I think you have a good sense of what Tolkien's imagining here, say when Aragorn just bursts into his Gondor song here. Hmm. So it's not something big or grand, but something a lot simpler. At least that's my take on it. So, Yeah, hot tip. Yeah. All right, so sorry. Yep, go ahead. Favorite lines. Oh, well, I was going to say, you stole mine. Uh, you already mentioned it. Uh, uh, well, I stole my own, too. I've already said mine. Well, then I'll pick out something else good. So All right. the discussion of Gimli was had mentioned that Gandalf's advice might not have been wise because he himself... Uh, died following his advice and Aragorn yeah. has this response that you know it's kind of just on theme it's the council of Gandalf was not founded on foreknowledge of safety for himself or for others said Aragorn there are some things that it is better to begin than to refuse even though the end may be dark yeah that's just another one of those uh, uh on theme on message quotes out here all right so I said mine of course so we're good there um, last thing to talk about, really, I guess, is my chapter title rating. I'm going to give this one a 6 out of 10, because it's just pretty straightforward. It's just kind of average, but a little above average, because I, I like the alliteration. So, that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> there you go. Well, okay. All right. So, next week, we are shifting point of view again. We've been with Aragorn two chapters, but we're going to shift into Merry and Pippin's point of view i guess really just pippins technically uh in book three chapter three the orakai 